Professional wrestling is the one true sport. Other sports have their share of intense dramatic moments, but nothing can compare with professional wrestling. Welcome to Wrestling History X, where three friends come together to talk about the stories behind the matches. I'm Matt. I'm reporting remotely from Alcatraz. Bloody, bloody, bloody. I'm here for a Super Brawl potty. Welcome to episode <laughs> 243, Super Brawl 7. The big one will hit San Fran when the big boys play. Get ready for the rumble. For the rumble? We know WCW is not good with these. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, uh, I mean, it's obviously an earthquake reference. Not John Tenta, but oh. uh, the natural disaster. Gotcha. A, te- a tectonic like plate shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How do the streets sense. get so wavy? I didn't think about that. Okay. I think yeah. I just put it together as we did it. Get ready for the rumble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, I, all right. So this is the seventh Super Brawl produced by WCW. It would take place on February 23rd, 1997 from the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California with an attendance of 13,324 people. That's a whole lot of cow folk. Absolutely. Um, And hopefully it is a rumble and not a natural disaster. (laughs) Trying to figure out why is it called the Cow Palace, though? I don't know that. I it's honestly, San Francisco. That just seems like a weird. I know the Cow Palace mm. is a um, a building that is famous for wrestling, kind of like the Sportatorium, but but Draw people in by the herds. <laughs> I guess so. Uh. <laughs> but in California, I feel like I don't know. I never think of California as a wrestling state, but the I always thought that for some reason the Cow Palace was in like Southern California, like in the L.A. area. I didn't realize it was in San Francisco. I feel like I should have known that. Yeah, I figured you know before I would. I mean, yeah. I knew it was in California. The idea for the arena was inspired by the popularity of the Livestock Pavilion at the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. Good lord. Basically, a local newspaper asked as early as 1935, why, when people are starving, should money be spent on a palace for cows? And a headline writer turned the phrase around, thus, the Cow Palace. Huh. It's a memorable name. Yeah. Just, and it's still up. I believe it's still around. That's what I was going yeah. to ask. Is it still a thing or has it been replaced by the, you know, Taco, I mean, most of the big Bell. shows probably go to the new Warriors arena. But I know that as 2019-ish, I know New Japan's ran there. Actually, the... 2018 actually, uh, G1. No, new Japan uh, ran there earlier this year. It was the show that... Mm. Mercedes and Willow fought for the oh, okay. strong belt. That was okay. the Cow Palace. Okay, yeah, one of the first New Japan shows I watched. It was like, the weekend it happened. Cody, uh, Cody, Coda, and Kenny yeah. uh, was a triple threat at the Cow Palace before mm-hmm. COVID. It's yeah. also, yeah, this was yeah, pre AEW and all that. And I, yeah. uh, I, I remember uh, that's where I uh, fell in love with uh, Jay White being a shit heel. Yeah, it was like the first time that Coda and Kenny had. 
been opponents in a match in like years. Yeah, and of course and, it was, it was the clo- a three way. But it was the closest thing that Kenny and Coda were willing to do huh. without it being a singles match. Yeah. And I remember people being like, why the fuck is Cody here? <laughs> but To take a pin. To take, yeah, yeah. Because he was fine with it. He was just doing the thing that we all saw him do for the last five years, getting, getting that name up. But we are in San Francisco, California. Yeah, we are. So Shane, did you do what you do? I think I did what I do. I tried to do what I do anyways. Yes, here we are. We're in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. So I did what I typically do, and I hopped on the old internet and said, what the hell do people eat in California, in San Francisco? What started there? What's popular there? And I came across mission-style burritos. That was the main thing that kept popping up for me. Mission-style burritos, I guess, started in the Mission District in San Francisco. And it, uh, they were big-ass burritos, and they caught on. The founder of Chipotle, I guess, was a fan of the Mission-style burrito and decided that he wanted to spread the word of mission or spread the mission, whatever the hell you want to call it, make it his mission to let everybody know about these burritos. And the craze just continued to grow and grow and grow. And you've got Chipotles, you got Qdoba, you got, I don't know if they're still Freebirds. That used to be an Oklahoma one. But all those, let me build you this big ass burrito, wrap it in foil for you, stuff it with as much stuff as we can to the point that you don't think you're going to be able to eat it. But then mm-hmm. after you're done eating it, you can't believe you ate the whole thing, but you have no regrets because it was good. <laughs> yeah, you've got you know big fat food coma kicking in. But yeah, I went to uh, Qdoba. I contemplated going to Chipotle, and then I pulled up their menu, and they didn't have as many options on their DoorDash menu for me to choose from, and I didn't want my first Chipotle experience, because I've never been to Chipotle, to be a delivery. I figured it should be me going there and actually saying, give me this, give me this, give me this. Um, you wanted the, the, the legit experience. Yes, I want to see what they have. I hate I hate when people order stuff, but they don't know what you have, and then you know they want you to either describe your entire menu to them, or they want to change everything about it because they don't know the way that you do it. So yeah, I didn't want to be one of those people, so I went with Qdoba because I know Qdoba, and I know they have all this extra stuff that I can add on there without having to be charged even more for it. We went with a, uh, I should have got carnitas. I don't know why I got it. didn't get carnitas. I went for chicken, cilantro lime rice, black beans, some guac, a roasted corn salsa, sour cream, cheese, and I think there's something else in there too. I can't remember. But yeah, this is the, uh, the mission style burritos were just loaded with as much shit as you can fit into it as opposed to the old style burritos where it was just, you know, here's a little meat, here's a little lettuce and tomato or, you know, cheese and sauce and that's it. It was basically fitting an entire meal into a tortilla. That was their mission, to feed you in one foil-wrapped bomb. Yeah. Not to make this longer, but are mission tortillas from San Francisco? I'm going to guess they probably are, or they just acquired the name (laughs) of, here, build your own big-ass burritos at home. But yeah, I have yet to uh, fully unwrap mine, so we'll crinkle the foil in front of the microphone... Crinkle, crinkle. Let's go for this good side here with some guac. All right. Three, two, one, go. That's a big-ass bite. You can't go wrong with any of those, like, fast K 
casual burrito spots. Mm-hmm. I probably only go to one like every two years, but it always uh, always uh, works out great. It's been a while for me. I used to go for just the burrito bowl. Yeah, the burrito bowl is nice when you're busy, but you want something hearty. My uh, friend, his hack was always get the burrito bowl because he said that you typically got more more food, but then just get uh, a side of chips and you get two meals out of it. True. I always thought that was a respectful move. Well, something that would happen right around the same time as Super Brawl 7, Marcy Playground would release their debut album a couple of days later. I smell sex and candy hair. You say in? Is it in or and? And. And. Oh, yeah, because in candy is very weird. That song was uh, huge when I was in fifth grade, but I guess it took a while for that song to catch on because this is well before I was in fifth grade. I mean, the album released in February, but the single didn't hit airwaves until, like, September. But it did, that song did end up Lasting on the Modern Rocks chart for 15 weeks mm-hmm. at number one. It was really a huge did. song. had a, yeah. a, a very alluring video. Mm-hmm. I never listened to the album. Did you guys have it? No. No. I have one friend. I literally think this is the only song I've ever heard of Marcy Yes. Uh, I have one weird friend from high school who uh, is a bit of a drug addict. And he would always say, he's like, yeah, that song's overplayed, but the whole album's pretty good. It's all about heroin. And I think that guy went on to pretty into pills so you know it makes sense i still never listened to it i was like mark i believe you <laughs> I you were calling him a mark <laughs> no, no no that was his name he was a mark for drugs marky's playground yeah and that's the only single i that i can't think of even like another one that tried i mean they've obviously had to have released other singles but this is the only one that got any traction they had a song on the jay and silent bob strike back movie soundtrack oh really I think I may have had a copy of that, but I don't remember anything about it except for, like, Afro Man. Let's see. But everything I've seen about them is, like, they had, they didn't really have, like, one, like, style. I don't even know what style you would call that song, even. Uh, heroin rock? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, why not? <laughs> When I hear that song, I don't even hear guitar, even though I know that there's guitar in there. I just, you know, kind of hear it as like oh, yeah. a lazy pop song. I mean, looking at just a list of songs, you've got Sex and Candy, St. Joe on the School Bus, Poppies, so you know, it's already got some drug references a couple times here. One more, Suicide, Opium. There's a song called Poppy and a song called Opium? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, there's a yeah. There's Punk a running. My guy was, my buddy wasn't uh, lying about the theme. <laughs> I guess that Saint Joe on the school bus hit like number eight. Mm. Well, if I ever decide to um, listen to the record, I'll report back. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a a Monday morning with Marcy's playlist or something like that. <laughs> Is this Saint Joe? This is Saint Joe on the school bus. We'll play a little bit while we're talking over it. <laughs> huh. I mean, it feels it sounds... like an alternate, like a mid-90s alternative yeah. guitar rock like I was, song. I was approaching 
20. The show was actually on my the half birthday before my 20th birthday, so it, it sounds sounded like, very much like everything else that was being played on the rock stations. On yeah, yeah. it sounds like the the Toadies covering Nirvana, <laughs> but like you know, but less intri- but probably less interesting than either of like the bands. Grunge, but with a little more of an emo twist to it. Yeah, just like, can you make it more radio friendly? And they're like, yes, we'll do whatever you want. Yes. Can you take the word out about like suicide and switch it with sex and then take mm-hmm. out the part about heroin and maybe call it candy or something? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> well, that's Marcy Playground for you. Yeah, and that's... A whole that lot going on than, in February. Yeah, that's, that's a, a whole lot more than a lot of people know about Marcy's Playground. Yeah. In a few weeks, you'll hear us say, Marcy's Playground, Sex and Candy, hit number three on the alternative charts. Uh, hopefully it isn't the trend where we talk about how the lead singer from Marcy's Playground just passed away or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> still alive as far as I know. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, where's... Here, we got wood floors. There you go. Yeah. Knock on wood. We're not going to jinx you, whatever your name is. Nobody knows. Marcy. Just, just his mother and his wife. Well, let's see if this show smells... Like sex and candy. <laughs> we get a shot of Alcatraz before going inside to see Roddy Piper exiting a cell. And this is where I grabbed my remote and went, is this really how it starts? Did it like skip? Did I fall asleep? Because that just didn't seem like a, a start to a show. But it's a pretty cool one. Yeah. A guard goes to lead the way only for Roddy to yell, I know my way. Before going running into the courtyard screaming, I didn't spend seven days in hell for nothing. Piper continues by calling Hogan an endangered species, followed by riding on the front of a boat, laughing like a maniac, yelling that he's coming and he's bringing Alcatraz with him, while also chuckling that he sees sharks in the water. I mean, it's very goofy and a little more reminiscent of some of the earlier 90s WCW stuff, but it's Roddy Piper, so it always works. Yep. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, joined by Dusty Rhodes and Bobby, the brain Heenan. And Dusty says Roddy lived through pains, blues, and agony, while the brain thinks Hollywood should lock his doors, because Piper is coming for him. Tony then shows us clips of six stealing title belts such as when he stole Eddie's U.S. championship, before also stealing the cruiserweight belt as well. So Shivani calls him a kleptomaniac. And we go to our first match. Six versus Dean Malenko for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Last time we saw the cruiserweight belt, it was actually on Ultimo Dragon at Wrestling World. Yeah. Since then, Dean had defeated Dragon... To, on Clash 34 about a month prior. And then, since then, Six had stolen the belt. So he walks out with the belt, you know, just being the little shit that he is. While commentators also mentioned that Dean's father had trained Six to add another layer to this feud. And Malenko goes right after the kid with turnbuckle smashes and a spinning heel kick, goes for the cover, only to pull him up to continue the punishment with a brainbuster. For another cover, again pulling six up. He's pissed. The kid is able to get a boot up on a charging Dean, but then charges into a power slam from Malenko for a two count. Six reverses a whip and charges into a corner with a splash, but Dean moves, leaving the kid caught upside down on the ropes, 
So Malenko nails a dropkick and goes for the Texas Cloverleaf, only for Six to escape by raking the eyes. Dean hits a crossbody that sends them both over the ropes to the floor before Malenko goes to grab the championship, allowing the kid to regroup and attempt a spin kick, only for Dean to duck and connect with a clothesline. And the crowd is behind the face, just so you guys know. <laughs> they're not, they might be wearing NWO shirts, but they're pro Dean in this situation. Yeah. Their souls have not been sold out yet. Mm-mm. They return to the ring where Malenko misses a clothesline. So Six tries for a spin kick that Dean catches, but the kid then hits an enziguri to take down his opponent. Malenko is then knocked down into a corner with a combo of kicks, followed by a bronco buster and a flash leg drop for a near fall. And Six has been uh, selling his knee after he took that drop kick to it and doing a good and consistent job of it. Gotta give him flowers because... Not everybody's uh, consistent when it comes to selling. Six locks on a sleeper multiple times, with Dean escaping finally with a back suplex to get a two count. But the kid's back to his feet first to stay on the attack, with kicks, elbows, and chops, before delivering a second rope elbow drop to the neck, straddled across the apron. And Six continues the vertical suplex before heading up top for a leg drop that gets a near fall. The kid puts another sleeper on, with Malenko escaping by ramming Six into the turnbuckles, who then charges out with a clothesline, only for Dean to duck and counter it into a sleeper hold of his own. The crowd has a wonderful little chant while Six is on top here, where they say, one, two, three, a sucks, which is kind of fun, like (laughs) counting up to it. The kid shoves Malenko off into the ropes, where he bounces right back for the two to knock noggins for a double KO. Six climbs to the top turnbuckle, only for Dean to trip him up, causing the kid to crotch himself. Followed by Malenko delivering a super backplex, which Six sort of reverses in midair to knock both men down. And the kid grabs the cruiserweight title that's sitting in a corner, when Eddie Guerrero would come running down to have a tug of war with Six. But Eddie finally lets go. And the momentum causes Dean to get clocked right in the face with the belt. <sighs> allowing the kid to make the cover for the pin. And, and the win. win. And new! Must say, amazing. Amazing timing on the, uh, on the, the belt spot. Those, uh, that was one of the better looking ones that I've seen. Because we've all seen that spot. Yeah. A bunch of times. We get Mean Gene Okerlund in the back to plug the hotline. And he says he spotted a WCW superstar having breakfast with the NWO. Uh-oh. Call now to find out who. Hmm. Any Means... guesses? Mm-hmm. You, see, you think it's Ming? <laughs> <laughs> Hacksaw. Um, That'd be great. Is Hacksaw ever in the NWO? I don't remember. I can't if he wasn't, it was a missed opportunity. Not yet. <laughs> I can't think of anybody that joins here in the near future. So. But, you know, they're just trying to get, get some um, pennies out of you. That's right. Oh, you know, Lord willing, it's not Diamond Dallas Page. Speaking of him, Mean Gene welcomes him in. Hey. With neither man knowing who his opponent is, but they do know it will be an NWO member. And DDP starts to go through the list to narrow down the opponents, before Gene suggests it might be Buff Bagwell, followed by actually getting it confirmed through an update in his earpiece. Uh-huh. We all could have, I guessed Bagwell before they even got there. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, 
He's not having a match with Scott Hall tonight. Yeah, it's I'm not positive. One of the big three. Page then says, "Buff, when you think you've got my number, diamond cutter, bang." It's um, DDP versus Vincent in a boxing match. Yes. Little Piper rundown. Oh, there you go. So we go to our second match: Conan, Laparca, and Villano Four versus Juventud Guerrera, Super Calo. In Cyclope. And we haven't seen Kahlo since Fall Brawl 96, episode 220. And the rest since World War Three ninety six, episode 229. And Mike today, of course, joins us for the Lucha Fun, as Villano and Cyclope started off with a few hip tosses. Conan comes in with right hands and a rolling lariat to Hoovy, but Guerrera fires back with a head scissors takedown and a springboard dropkick followed by going for a body scissors, only for Conan to counter into a German suplex. Callow runs in, only to get clotheslined down, followed by Cyclope jumping in to get powerbombed as well by Conan. Wild-ass lucha shit. Now Parker tags in, only to have Super Callow charge at him with a splash that misses, leaving Callow hung up on the ropes. So the Parker nails a running spin kick before trying for a shoulder block, only for Super Callow to move in time causing Parka to hit shoulder first on the post. Posted. Um, I wanted to say that the crowd seems way more receptive of uh, this Lucha match than the recent WWF shows that have attempted the same thing. My first thought was, well, we are in California, but at the same time, WCW has had more Lucha and high-flying stuff yes. on the show recently. I mean, all these guys have probably been on a nitro in the last month yeah absolutely so everyone knows at least they know who laparca is and they know yeah. who Vitude is wwf sure. at the time just and of course in, conan brings in these you know random lucha people for the royal rumble that yeah just to fill it out seen or mm-hmm. heard of and then you know, they have no interest in using them regularly yes just, just yeah, they're doing it they're doing it right as far as uh you know trying to get people to give a shit mm-hmm Callow with the head scissors takedown, only to then charge into a boot, allowing Laparca to hit a clothesline and attempt a suplex, which is blocked, leading to Super Callow tossing Parka out to the floor. Now Super Callow would follow out with a drop kick and a swanton bomb over the ropes onto Laparca, before missing a springboard dive. Parka grabs a chair and sits Callow on it, for Laparca to run back into the ring, only to fly out with a tope suicida onto Super Callow. And they return to the ring for both men to make tags, bringing in Cyclope to deliver a drop kick to Villano that sends them out to the floor. And Cyclope looks to follow out, but he completely misses a springboard moonsault, landing hard on the concrete. Yeah, it's a tough look. Allowing Villano to roll him back in and deliver a snap suplex for a two count, as we see Harlem Heat in the back answering questions on WCWWrestling.com. Tune in now. Call in now? Call in now or something. Well, well, you get in. audio. Log in. That's right. Mm-hmm. Log in. Simulcast. They, they have audio for the day. Cyclope is tossed back out. So Hoovy jumps in to dropkick number four and attempt a top rope 450 splash. But he completely misses as well. Now Guerrero and Villano are fighting over a waist lock. When number four goes to suplex Hoovy, only for him to flip out and hit a spinning kick. Guerrero then whips number four to his own corner. Charging in, only for Villano to move out of the way and tag in Laparca, who flies in with a corkscrew moonsault for a near fall. 
Parker sets Hoovy on the top turnbuckle for a superplex, only for Guerrero to shove him off onto the ropes to crotch himself, followed by a springboard hurricanrana for a two-count as Conan breaks it up. Kind of miss the old K-Dog, but he's here just looks like a fully realized character, ass-cooking Cholo. So, great look. K-Dog then lifts Hoovy up on his shoulders, with Villano flying in off the top for a doomsday device, followed by a double-team powerbomb and some kind of submission on Guerrero. Now, Callow and Cyclope run in to break up the submission, but they then place Villano and Conan in the exact same submission, while they still have it on Hoovy, before the Parker runs in and makes a cover on Guerrera for an earfall. This match is very, like, busy. Modern, well, it feels like a, like a modern AEW six-man tag to me, in a way. I mean, it's obviously more on the lucha side of things, but as far as, like, Visually, everybody's doing a lot of stuff, and uh, it all like comes together in this moment that involves everybody. Conan throws Guerrero over the ropes to the floor, but Cyclope and Super Calo go to whip K-Dog and Villano into each other, only for it to be reversed, causing their opponents to knock noggins. Then number four and Conan place Calo and Cyclope in another submission. When the Parka and Hoovy would meet in the middle of the ring, only for Guerrero to be powerbombed down again, followed by a surfboard. Is this the uh, where they make a big star in the middle yes. of the ring? Yeah, they like everybody's in a submission, and, and somebody gets powerbombed directly in the middle of the star. It is uh, a sight for a um, camera high for a, an eagle eye camera for sure. Everyone escapes the submission attempts and drop kicks Villano, K Dog, and Parka out to the floor, following out with triple. Tope Suicidas. Now they drag Conan back in for a triple team, but Laparca and number four trip up Cyclope and Supercalo, leaving Hoovy alone in the ring to cradle up K-Dog for a two-tout. Conan then nails a sit-out powerbomb for the pin! And, and the, the win. win. Win? As it looks like Hoovy kicked out. Yeah, his shoulder was definitely up, mm-hmm. and the announcers even say so. Uh-oh. Yeah. Like, was Hubitu just that worried about taking the pin? Or uh, was there just so much stuff going on that he couldn't remember that the finish was jackknife sit-out powerbomb? (laughs) Which is about as simple as I could probably. It's like, yeah, that's the kind of move that should pin somebody. But hey, there was a bunch of fun stuff in here. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a a second pay-per-view match if I've ever seen one. Another quick thought I had about... Just think about if ECW was on the West Coast instead of the East Coast, how many Lucha Bros they would have in there. It would have, yeah, it would have been a lot, a lot more. Because, yeah, these guys are some of, like, the top Lucha stars of the time. There's plenty of other people, like, just south of the border that would have came up for ECW and done some wild-ass shit. Yep. So we go to our third match. Ray Mysterio Jr. versus Prince Iakea. For the WCW World Television Championship. So the story behind this match was that Ray was feuding with Lord Steven Regal over the TV title. In the previous Monday, Mysterio had distracted Regal, allowing the Prince to roll him up for the pin to become champion. 
With Ray still wanting the belt, he would challenge Ikea here. So Ikea's on the come up. Is he the Barry Horowitz of WCW, or are they trying, or is he like kind of a, uh, are they doing a, an attempted Rocky Maivia thing? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's what I figured. But I wasn't sure if he was around just eating pins for a long time. Yeah, his character. I mean, it's, it's basically weird. think the one, two, three kid. Yeah, him yeah. beating Regal is kind of him beating. Scott Hall, unfortunately, Prince Ikea never becomes as good as Six. No. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, Six he, may have had the best match we've watched on the beginning of the show. He uh, eventually takes on the gimmick of another former prince. He eventually becomes oh, yeah. the, the artist formerly known, as formerly known as Prince, 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 prince Ikea, otherwise known as Taft Cappy. Taft Cappy? Taft Cappy. The artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. That's yeah how they went to spelling out the words Triple H. They just put Taft Cappy on the screen. Cause... Yeah, we all know that Prince just did that to get out of a like record label dispute. Mm-hmm. He would have never changed his name if he wasn't for that. Who knows? Maybe this was he was just trying to get out of WCW. Yeah, or... sure. <laughs> yeah, because the WWF really want was really barking up his tree. <laughs> so the last time we saw this championship defended was at Super Brawl 6. Hey, happy Episode 189, between Johnny B. Bad and DDP. I'm sure it was good. They always had good matches. Probably started the show off, too. I'm sure it did. Probably. <laughs> Mike Tanay's back at the announce table for this one, as the two men shake hands before they trade holds and reversals, evading the other's attack until the prince lands a thrust kick for a two-count. And the fight spills out to the floor with Ikea hitting a top rope crossbody onto Mysterio, followed by a pair of suplexes back inside for near falls. The Prince continues with a gorilla press slam into a backbreaker before attempting another crossbody, only for Ray to catch him with a drop kick on his way down. Now Mysterio goes for a body scissors, only for Ikea to look to counter into a powerbomb, but Ray ends up reversing it into a hurricanrana that sends them both out to the floor. Mysterio runs back in, only to leap out with a swanton bomb out onto the prince, flat on the concrete. But they make their way back in for Ray to nail some chops, turnbuckle smashes, and a double springboard moonsault for a two-count. Ikea then catches Mysterio running the ropes and looks to hot-shot him on the turnbuckle. But Ray wiggles free and shoves the prince into them instead, followed by a spinning heel kick. Mysterio continues with a springboard split-legged moonsault for a near fall. Goes for another springboard move, but Ikea hits him from behind, allowing him to deliver a super Samoan drop. And now Lord Steven Regal makes his way down to the ring as our competitors struggle to make it to their feet. And the prince tosses Ray to the ropes, going for a drop kick, only for Mysterio to avoid and come off the top rope with a hurricanrana. That wasn't very good. A uh, slop run, if you will. Ray then goes to the apron for a springboard something, but Regal pulls him off, causing him to hit headfirst on the hardest part of the ring. Oh. Yeah. Lord Steven then rolls Mysterio back in, allowing IK to make the cover for the pin. And, and the win. win. Post-match, the prince sees Regal and realizes what happened. So Ikea tries giving the belt to Ray, but he won't accept it. It's a weird way to try to get Prince I.K.O. over. Yeah. It just kind of 
as the third man in another two's feud. <clears throat> yeah. But for him to like give the belt back, it's like he won and it was a mistake. It's like you can give him a rematch, but don't just like hand the belt over. It was very bizarre. Yeah. It's not like Ray was a champion coming in. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, what is he doing? <laughs> My biggest complaint with this uh, mostly fine match is that early in the match, Prince Iakea hits the mat from a shoulder block, block from Rey Mysterio, and he's too big to do that, especially early in the match. <laughs> but uh, outside of that, it's fine. Mean Gene's in the back, plugging the hotline again, where he welcomes in the 472-pound, I mean, oops, 473-pound much better giant, asking him about the NWO's mind games. Just wait three hours. He'll have to make a movement. The big man says he rode and roomed with them, so he knows what they're about. They want him rattled and crazy, but that's not happening. He's composed, because he's the conductor, while Hall and Nash are playing the instruments. The giant then guarantees victory when Okerlund reminds him that his partner, Lex Luger, can't wrestle, so he'll be going it alone. My favorite part of this is that He's ridden the road with them, and he knows how bad they drive, which I thought was a very funny insult. fee fi fo fum. <laughs> I was waiting for some sort of dumbass non-Ryan. <laughs> and I know how bad they drive. It's like, <laughs> like, if you wanted to, yeah, if you want to be scathing, you just talk about them like drinking and driving, mm-hmm. which was definitely happening. Yeah, Kevin never wears a seatbelt. <laughs> so we go to our fourth match: Buff Bagwell versus Diamond Dallas Page. DDP gets the pyro, and he is over. Yep. DDP slaps Buff to start before taking control with holds and working the neck with elbows and a swinging neckbreaker that sends Bagwell out to the floor to regroup. Just so you guys know, Kimberly is also still over with some fans as some guy just holds up a giant Kimberly poster in the crowd. It's like, where did you even get that? Was she there? No, that's why it's okay. funny. It's like, that's yeah, she's not. Like, yeah. no, she's not. she said that, I had to think back. I'm like, yeah, no, did she, I even see her? Because no. I don't remember her. She's not particularly involved at the moment, but they remember her. How could you forget her? Bring I mean, back the doll. I remember her. <laughs> yeah. And it's been 27 years. <laughs> Paige follows out, keep up the attack, dragging Buff back to the apron, who yanks DDP throat first down on the top rope. Bagwell works over Paige with boots to the gut, chokes, and a second rope tornado DDT for a two count. But Buff starts arguing with the ref, which allows DDP to roll up Bagwell several times for near falls. Buff then nails a clothesline that turns Paige inside out. But he goes back to arguing with the ref once again. But Scott Dickinson isn't having it, so he shoves Bagwell down and gets in his face. Damn right. This allows DDP to recover once again, to hit a spinning clothesline, an atomic drop, and a sit-out powerbomb for a two-count. Buff avoids a charge into a corner, going for a pin with leverage that only gets two, before some mounted punches. But Page hotshots Bagwell on the turnbuckle and goes for the diamond cutter, only for Bagwell to reverse it into a backside pin for a near fall. Buff delivers a bridging fisherman's suplex, but he gets up from the pin attempt to tell the ref that he wants him to be counted out. That he wants a 10 count. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Bagwell poses for the crowd, allowing DDP to make it to his feet. When Buff goes for a reverse neckbreaker, only for Paige to counter it into the diamond cutter. Ah. 
But the NWO come running down, sending DDP running through the crowd to escape, with the ref calling for the DQ win for Page. It's the difference between Nick Patrick being the ref and Scott Dickinson being the ref. Page runs away because the NWO comes down. He's like, nah, Page won this one. <laughs> yeah, all right. Marcus Bagwell acts way too, like, for a big guy. I mean, he's basically a comedy character where he looks huge, but he acts like a uh, pussy. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, but he's in the NWO. So it's just like there's too many opposing things going on here. It's just a thought I had. <laughs> he's like begging off. He's just so so whiny for a... Uh, you know, the NWO guys were, like, whiny in a confident way. Where this guy just seems like a whiny chicken shit. Yeah, that's just because he's a fresh heel. He is a fresh heel. Yeah, he's he's got to... Hasn't figured it out yet? Do it again to, to get people to, you know, boo him or mm-hmm. or whatnot. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm hoping he gets a little better, but I'm trying to remember. I don't think he really does. He's following, like, the, like, traditional, like, in, entry-level heel rules but he's in the nwo so they need to be tweaked a little bit i think tony then shows us a fan who won a sony playstation giveaway this guy was annoying as fuck keith phillips from ogden utah rookie contestant yeah i mean to howl and celebrate yeah ow i mean just way yeah he he must have (laughs) saw the gran turismo commercial i'd be excited too uh but the yeah i mean if they actually gave him a PlayStation, those were like 600 bucks when they came out. I mean... But because he helped so much, Brain starts making fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that, you know, not only did they give him a PlayStation, but they also gave him that you know, front row ticket or uh, whatever that he had. Because yeah. I'm going to guess that ticket may have cost more than the PlayStation. No. Not in uh, Well, that's true. It's WCW. It was probably a two-for-one or... It's know. also 97. I feel like ticket prices just got... Like way out of control after the year like two thousand, just higher and higher and higher. So we go to our fifth match: Chris Jericho versus Eddie Guerrero for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. How awesome would it have been if Jericho and Guerrero were a tag team and we could have had Guerrero? <laughs> <laughs> I think they could have got a better name, but it probably would have been a good tag team. Guerrero. <laughs> they never would have done that in WCW. No, that's an AEW tag team name. Well, no, or WWF. Because, yeah, you know, you, you throw team uh, in front of it, Team mm-hmm. Guerrerico. Yeah, it's Team Guerrerico and WWF. <clears throat> Especially, yeah, like post 2000. <laughs> so the two go to the mat early on, trading submission attempts until Eddie nails a spinning back elbow and a back suplex for a two count. Jericho responds with a back suplex and an ab stretch before going to a test of. Strength. Yeah, two strong men going at it. That leads to a suplex from Chris, followed by the two men going through a sequence of pin attempts. Jericho continues with a vertical suplex for a near fall, followed by a spine buster and locking on the lion tamer in the middle of the ring. But Guerrero powers out, only to receive a clothesline from Chris, as the crowd starts to chant boring. No way. I know. I'm throwing major side eye at this crowd. Yeah, it uh, it always blows my mind because it's usually like the same two or three wrestlers that they get bored with, maybe four wrestlers, and it's like wrestlers who actually wrestle instead of just get in there and 
shit all over the show. I guess finger point, leg drop. Yeah, yeah. I guess slap. Yeah, I love Dean Malenko. I'm glad the crowd is uh, on his side, but both of these guys are better than six. Mm -hmm. Jericho works the back with a chin lock and a modified torture rack backbreaker for a two count, followed by Chris attempting a springboard crossbody, only for Eddie to move and fire up with a running clothesline. A power bomb and a brain buster. Oof, crispy. Guerrero heads up top, but Jericho moves, so Eddie's able to roll out of his high flying attack, followed by the two men fighting over a waist lock, which Chris wins to toss Guerrero with a release German and a release belly to belly suplex for a near fall. Damn. I do love the look of the Cow Palace. It's big and bright and it's nice and full. Jericho drops Eddie crotch first on the ropes before delivering a springboard dropkick that sends Guerrero out to the floor, then following out with a springboard plancha. After rolling Eddie back in, Chris heads up top, leaping in with a double axe handle, only for Guerrero to catch him with an atomic drop and the backslide pin attempt for a two count. In front of a dead crowd. Both men charge at each other with a spinning heel kick and a running forearm smash to leave them both laying. But Eddie's up first, only to run right into a power slam for an air fall. The crowd is completely over it, but this is a very, like this feels like something we would have watched on a Japanese show. Yep. Uh, which means that I'm into it. What's yeah. their problem? Right. Jericho goes for a slam, but Guerrero floats over and takes Chris over into a pin with a body scissors for a two count. Only for Jericho to respond with a thrust kick and a La Magistral pin attempt for a near fall. Chris charges into a corner, but he's hit with a back elbow, allowing Eddie to try for a tornado DDT. Only for Jericho to reverse it into a bridging Northern Light suplex Ooh. for the pin. And no, Guerrero gets a boot on the ropes. Sounds like the crowd's booing out of boredom. Disgusting. Disgusting people. Chris goes for a powerbomb, but Eddie flips out and nails a sunset flip for the pin and, and the win. win. Yep. I was like, this match is baller. Uh-huh. Yeah, this would have this would have done great in Japan. And the thing is, is like this isn't even one of those like we talk about how in Japan a crowd gets excited about uh, submission moves and guys crawling to the ropes and stuff and there's not a that's not what's happening here this is a junior and that even happens in junior matches but this is intense technical fight yeah and yeah I, I, they, they know who these guys are I don't know what the problem is so we go to our sixth match the faces of fear of Ming and the Barbarian versus public enemy of Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge versus Harlem Heat of Booker T and Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry in a triangle tag match. So we haven't seen Faces of Fear since Starcade 96, episode 232. Grunge or Harlem Heat since World War III, 96, episode 229. Or Rocco since Bash at the Beach, 96, episode 208 who also now has a shaved head. Looks good on him. Did they specify why he shaved his head? I don't mm -hmm. remember hearing no. it, but okay. Not that I know of. But Tony does tell us that this was supposed to be a four corners match, with the Steiners included, 
as a number one contenders match. Which it is now not. But the NWO had run them off the road, causing a car accident. Oh yeah, they're bad drivers. True. Yeah. But I'm curious. It kind of makes them good drivers if they could drive somebody off the road. Right? Why is it still not a number one contenders match? Because they wanted the Steiners <laughs> to have the match with the Outsiders. <laughs> That's the logic that... Uh, Yep. They were, yeah. That's the logic. Yeah, that's it. So Barbie starts it off with turnbuckle smashes and a power slam of rock for a two count. But then the barbarian ends up backing up close enough so that Stevie Ray can tag himself in and nail a gorilla press slam on Rocco as well for a near fall. Johnny tags in and he's sent to the ropes where he gets a boot to the head from Booker and a bicycle kick from Stevie. Booker T continues the attack with a scissors kick for a two count before bringing Stevie Ray back in for some double teaming. And Stevie's working over grunge while Rock seems to want to have words with Sherry. So Booker gets in between them on the floor. And Booker T comes back with a side slam of Johnny, but he misses an elbow drop. But he spin a Rooney's up to nail a leg lariat. And Booker T's whip is reversed, but he avoids grunge's charge in only be taken down by a clothesline from Barbie on the apron, allowing Johnny to make a tag to Ming, who starts the clubbering of Booker T. The Barbarian returns to deliver an overhead belly-to-belly suplex for a two-count, followed by a clothesline, and Ming tags in to hit a pile driver of Booker for a near fall, before the faces of fear both go flying for a double headbutt for a two-count as everybody breaks it up. I know, it's like, um, they weren't there. That's the end. Mean then back body drops Booker T right into Barbie, who catches him and drops him with a powerbomb, making the cover, only to be broken up by Stevie Ray. Barbarian then goes to whip Booker, which Johnny blind tags in as they are on the ropes, before hitting a big boot that sends Booker out to the floor, which brings in Stevie to hit a clothesline from behind, which brings in Mean to thrust kick Stevie Ray out to the floor, which brings in Rock flying off the top with a somersault senton, only to be caught by Barbie, but then Grunge flies in off the top with a crossbody, leaving Rocco on top of the Barbarian for the pin and And the the win. win. Woo! We made it. My, My assumption is here that the Steiners will come back and beat the shit out of Public Enemy and then have a match with the Outsiders. Good for Public Enemy. It's like, the, I guess, I mean, the Outsiders need new opponents, and Public Enemy is not quite worthy. Mm-mm. Do you think Kevin Nash and Scott Hall look at Public Enemy and go, yeah, no, that's who we'll sell for? Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah, no. It's like, yeah, they've, I mean, they've, I think the best tag match they've had involved, uh, being the faces of fear and and faces of fear it's like oh well we can't just keep going back to the well because we know we're not we know they're not going to put it on them even though that would be cool yeah i mean but the steiners are somebody that could beat them and i could see wcw putting the belts on the faces of fear they had a good match with and then i want to say the nasties because it got fairly nasty between them in the ring yeah yeah woo yep (laughs) speaking of woo we go to our seventh match. Steve, Mongo, but Michael with Deborah versus Jeff Jarrett. In a grudge match. And if Double J wins, he has to be accepted into the Four Horsemen by everybody. 
But Shivani wants to know if someone must leave the group, as Jarrett would technically make them five. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, we all know Arn's not long for the wrestling world, so. And we all know Mongo's not actually a wrestler. That too. (laughs) Hey, he is showing improvement. Oh, yeah. It's not quite enough considering considering that he's in the Four Horsemen, but it's not nothing. He's got a briefcase and a valet. Well, I mean, just even in the ring. Like he's, he's got a, a little dog that he sometimes brings to the ring with them. I know. That's that's as close to a real wrestler as he's going to get. I'm just saying he's at least more comfortable, and it's not as disjointed. So Double J uses hip tosses and arm drags early on before strutting and posing, allowing Mongo to recover to hit a power slam and chop blocks, sending Jarrett to the floor to regroup. I mean, Michael goes after him, but Deborah stops him allowing Double J to use the distraction to attack from behind, taking the fight back into the ring to lock on an ab stretch with leverage. But Deborah whacks the hand of Jarrett with the briefcase. Now Mongo hip tosses Double J, missing a leg drop, only to then duck a clothesline and gorilla press slam Jarrett down to the mat before clotheslining out to the floor. And Deborah comes over with a towel to wipe Double J's sweat. So McMichael comes out and grabs the towel to choke Jarrett before tossing him into the guardrail multiple times. Back in the ring, Mongo telegraphs a back body drop, so Double J face plants and chokes him on the ropes before locking on a sleeper, which McMichael escapes and applies a sleeper of his own, only for Jarrett to escape with a back suplex for a two count. And Deborah looks at the camera and says... I don't know which one to help. She's married to one, and she <coughs> at least uh, is friends with Double J. And I was like, no wonder you got divorced within the year. <laughs> the two trade strikes before Mongo drops Double J with a couple of side slams for a near fall. But then Jarrett pokes the eyes, slamming Michael down, followed by heading up top for a crossbody for a two count. With Mongo powering out of the pin, causing Double J to inadvertently poke the ref, ref in the eye. Is that what he did? Uh, hitting, poking yeah, in the eye. Yeah, I saw him run into him. I just wasn't sure if he just like was like like pushed off Hyper and just like style. stuck his hand out. Yeah. Michael calls for the briefcase, only for Deborah to not want to give it to him. But she instead tosses it into the air, where Jarrett catches it oh, and no. whacks Mongo over the head. For the pin! And, and the win. And what a hit. It looks and sounds so great. Yep. It's, it's like, like they put a microphone in the thing. It's like a real briefcase. Mm-hmm. Post-match, Deborah winks at the camera, saying, oh, wow. How did that happen? While Double J celebrates becoming a horseman, before reminding everybody that Flair believed in him. The question is, will we have five horsemen? Oh, Deborah. So we go to our eighth match, the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan, with Jimmy Hart and Jacqueline, who versus Chris Benoit with Woman, in a San Francisco death match. My first thought is, could this be good? And my second thought was, I didn't know Jacqueline was ever in the WCW. I forgot she was. In fact, Jacqueline. Let's is a WWE Hall of Famer. Jackie. So the two ladies end up getting strapped together. And 
everybody just starts brawling away, even with the ladies heading outside to, to fight themselves. Sullivan hits a back body drop, but Chris comes back with chops and a scoop slam before heading up top, only for the Taskmaster to meet him to press slam him down to the mat. And I know that ECW was like on local television, but there's a BWO show all the way in San Francisco. Was, was there channels in California getting ECW at this oh, point? Oh, definitely. Probably. Really? By this point, yeah. Okay. Just... I mean, they'd already had their you know real superstar explosion by then where mm-hmm. you know they were more mainstream yeah i mean i know that they're doing something but i was like damn someone someone really must have been a fan because they got that shirt all the way over here i can't imagine he flew from one coast to the other for this sullivan continues the butterfly suplex as the ladies make their way into the ring where woman is whipping jackie until the taskmaster gets between them but this allows woman to yank up on the strap into depths unknown now Jacqueline's whipping woman, so Benoit looks to intervene, only to be whipped himself, followed by the strap being untethered from both ladies, so that Sullivan can hang Chris over the top rope with it, with Jackie then crippling Benoit with a kick on the floor. And both ladies attack their opponent's man, followed by them both grabbing the strap to use as a double clothesline, before returning to whipping each other. Pretty funny that they worked together for a second to clothesline both of the men. I got a kick out of that. I got a kick out of that, and then I just kept laughing at the screen of, why are they still holding this fucking strap? It's not attached to either one of them anymore. So they can holding it. So they can whip each other with it because a woman is a valet, not a wrestler. The men fight their way out to the floor, into the crowd, and to the concourse, while the ladies continue to brawl inside the ring. Taskmaster runs Benoit into a wall, slams him on a truck, and throws a trash can. But Chris fires back with chops and returns the wall and trash can shots, before brawling their way back to ringside, while Jackie is choking Woman with the strap inside the ring. Sullivan places Benoit in a tree of woe in a corner, followed by a running knee strike and a double stomp. He goes for the cover, only for Woman to start whipping him with the strap. And the Taskmaster looks to stalk after her, allowing Chris to recover, deliver a pile driver, and roll out to the floor to grab a table. And Benoit sets it up inside the ring, setting Sullivan atop it before heading up top. And Jacqueline tries to get to Chris to stop him to no avail as Woman pulls her back. So Jackie then knocks Woman down and just crawls on top of the Taskmaster to protect him. Oh my god. When Benoit flies off with a headbutt, knocking them all off of the table, Chris then rolls them over, making the cover for the pin and, and the, the win. win. Yeah, the table doesn't break. He just yeah, they hits them off. and they just like fall off of the table in a uh, just wreck of a pile. Yeah, poor Jackie. She bounces off of or out of the middle of the Chris-Kevin sandwich, lands on the ring, and then Kevin falls just right directly on, on top of her. Post-match, everybody but woman is motionless in the ring, with the ref calling for help. We see Arn Anderson looking on from the highway, shaking his head at the carnage. So what the fuck is this? Followed by Paul Orndorff, who we haven't seen since World War Three ninety-five, episode 173, Lee Marshall and Terry Taylor, who we haven't seen since Super Brawl 4, 
episode 112. Welcome back, Terrence. All coming out to check on the competitors in the ring. They're all calling for help, with EMTs finally arriving to place all three of them on stretchers and out into ambulances. You can't put them in the same ambulance. Mm, yeah. I do <laughs> love that they're selling that uh, bump because it did look nasty, but we've already seen like ECW. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, I don't, yeah. But this is, you know, still in kind of like with NXT today where when mm-hmm. somebody gets brought up to the main roster, you know, nobody's... Nobody knows anything about these people from anything that they've ever done before. So yeah, yeah. So a table shot matters change their here. name or have them do the yeah. exact same storyline that they've more. already done. How soon before we get the Chapa Gargano storyline? Oh, it's two years. It's cooking. SummerSlam. <laughs> they're not even going to try and work DIY as a as a yeah. team. They'll just go straight to the. It'll build up to WrestleMania f- with the DIY, and then you know, boom. Switch immediately into the the flip. You're saying this year or no? Like I yeah. guess yeah, yeah, through this year to next year. Tony then sends us to an ad for uncensored 1997. Oh good mm. lord, it's already uncensored. Time. Uncensored. It's like a cunt hair better than sold out. Probably. It's, it's like ECW, but worse. <laughs> Hugh Morris is locked in a cage, laughing and yelling about people tearing each other apart. He says there's no titles, belts, refs, or rules before telling someone to get him out of there. And just so you know, I looked ahead, and all of those things are in uncensored. Yeah, I have an issue when Hugh Morris is the star of your commercial for your upcoming pay-per-view. I have an issue when your ad for your pay-per-view is there's, there's no titles and no belts and no rules. Yuck. Mm-hmm. No titles, no belts. That's the purpose of pay-per-views. No titles, for no the belts, most no part. rules. Oh, my. Yeah. It's like, well, then what am I watching for? I guess if I wasn't watching ECW, maybe it would be a little exciting. But I've seen that, and there's never any rules there. Yeah, they at least have a title. Yeah. Well, they, they at least are reckless enough to make it... Interesting, but we'll see how reckless WCW gets next month. I just like how they put it both in there, too. No titles, belts. None of either one. No yeah, titles, no, t- no, no titles or belts. So we go to our ninth match. The Outsiders of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash with six. Versus the Giant for the WCW World Tag Team Championships. In a handicap match. So the story behind this match was that Lex Luger had decided to give the Giant a second chance, telling WCW to trust him again. Lex would save the Giant from an NWO attack before teaming with him for tag title opportunities. But the NWO would break Luger's arm. Eric Bischoff said he couldn't wrestle until the doctors cleared him, which they finally did, but Eric barred him anyways, making this a handicap match. Uh, weasel. The champs came out first, guys. Foreshadowing. Also, I was confused because, like, from what I remember, Six was holding, like, Scott Hall's belt. So I was like, is Scott Hall hurt and Six is going to tag with Nash? I was very confused, but well, that's just, not, that's not what klepto. happened. He's just that lazy. Yeah. He's, he's a klepto. Yeah. He picks up any belt he finds. I mean, that's funny. It's uh, <laughs> consistency. Yeah, it's a, the, you know, a throwback to the start. Mm-hmm. Rock, paper, scissors decides that Hall will start it off with the big man. 
throwing strikes, only for the Giant to return the favor, slamming Scott. Nash tags in, and our large competitors trade clotheslines, before Hall runs in, only to be clotheslined down as well, followed by a drop kick to Kevin, descending out to the floor. And the Giant rams Nash into a ring post, post back first, before returning to the ring to drop an elbow for a two count, which is broken up by a boot from Scott. The ref is getting Hall out of the ring when Six would fly in off the top with a cruiserweight belt shot to the head, allowing Kevin to nail a big boot, followed by a top rope bulldog from Scott, with Nash making the cover for the pin. And no, the giant kicks out. And the crowd is going wild for Logar, Logar. The outsiders keep up the attack with elbows, knees, and chokes from Kevin, while Hall punishes him with clotheslines and leg drops from the apron. Multiple running straddles from Nash, a spinning heel kick from Six on the floor to the head, before Scott tags in to go for mounted punches, only to be shoved off several times. The Giant then hits a pair of big boots and clotheslines to the outsiders, when Six would try to leap off the top rope again, only to be caught by the big man, so the kid tosses his belt to Hall. The Giant then tosses Six onto Kevin, when Scott would hit the big man from behind with the title, allowing Nash to deliver a jackknife powerbomb. Ooh, he hits it, and the crowd uh, definitely pops, because who expected that? But Kevin hurts his back in the process. Of course he did. So he's unable to make a cover. All of a sudden, Lex Luger starts making his way to the ring, with Bischoff running out as well to remind him that he's barred. But Lex just throws Eric into the guardrail. And Luger jumps on the apron, reaches out his hand to get the... Hot tag! A real one, guys. A real hot tag. Running forearm shots to the outsiders. Clothesline to six to knock him out of the ring before getting Nash up in the torture rack for the submission and and the win. win. And move! Post-match, the giant chokeslams Hall, making a cover for a three count as well. Covering all those bases. You gotta make sure when Eric Bischoff's around. Yep. I mean, this is how you this is how you run an angle. It's one way. I mean, people care about the giant now more than they have ever, mm-hmm. and you can tell. And Kevin Nash did the right thing and took a submission from Lex Luger. So we go to our tenth match: Hollywood Hogan with Ted DiBiase and Vincent versus Rowdy Roddy Piper for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The champion came out first. Foreshadowing. I love that Piper walks out wet because, I don't know, I guess he got impatient and swam. Came off the boat, yep. Hadn't taken a shower. He was all sweaty, all dirty. Would have been extra funny if there was like a little fish tail hanging out of his mouth. I just think it's funny that he's been in Alcatraz for a week. And that facial hair is all he's grown in a week. <laughs> and it's like less than what a 16-year-old could grow in a month. He's Irish. <laughs> Hogan spits on the kilt, hoping to draw Roddy out to the floor. But the ref's keeping Piper at bay. Only to finally make his way out to take the fight to Hollywood in the aisleway. They return to the ring where Roddy is just throwing rights, lefts, low blows... Choking Hogan with his t-shirt and biting his forehead that sends Hollywood retreating to the floor. 
Piper stays on him with more chokes, running Hogan into the guardrail, steel steps, and even using a chair. And back in the ring, Hollywood goes low, but it just seems to make Roddy even matter, hooking the nose of Hogan and even biting it. Michael Wall Street then runs down, only to be punched down to the floor. Vincent jumps on the apron, and he gets punched down, which allows Hollywood to recover and hit a shot to the throat of Piper. Hogan misses a clothesline, allowing Roddy to poke the eyes and clap the ears, sending Hollywood rolling out to the floor, where he drags Piper out as well. Roddy with strikes before returning the fight to the ring, dropping Hogan on the top rope to crotch him, as we see Sting and Macho Man Randy Savage make their way out. And a very Roddy Piper thing to do is after he drops Hogan nut first on the top rope, he grabs that rope. And shakes it like he's the ultimate warrior. Yep. Uh, just a little sassy, angry Roddy Piper. We haven't seen Macho since Halloween Havoc 96, episode 225. And Savage starts heading to the ring. But the stinger stops him momentarily. Only for Macho to ignore him and continue on down to the ring. Sting does an incredible thing where he just puts his hand out. Doesn't even grab him or anything. Just puts his hand out and gives like a slight look without even like moving his head. That just makes Sting even more intriguing. He's mm-hmm. he's really doing a great job of doing almost nothing at all. Tanya, the the loud, crazy, wild, peroxide-colored-haired Sting mm-hmm. was fun, but and this, this, is, yeah. this version of Sting where he's just silent and calculated in his moves. This this was the the sting that I think I'd always been waiting for. I mean, yeah, this is huge, but in like, I love Peroxide Sting because he wrestles, and this is an incredible character. But he's not doing any wrestling. No, but he's intriguing. But he's drawing people in. Yeah, he's he's uh, selling shirts. People are wearing makeup already. Yeah. Sting then leaves to the back as our competitors continue to trade strikes. When Hollywood would rake the eyes and back of Piper, sending him out to regroup. But Hogan follows out to ram Roddy back first into the ring post. Posted. And wrapping his leg around it as well. Back in the ring, more eye rakes and punches shared between the two until Hollywood locks on a bear hug, taking Piper down to the mat and going for multiple pin attempts that all get two counts. Hogan gets up and he tries for an elbow drop, only for Roddy to avoid and fire up with a flurry of right hands. But another low blow allows Hollywood to go for a body slam, which Piper wiggles free to apply a sleeper in the middle of the ring. And Hogan is taken down to the mat, with the ref checking the arm once, twice, three times, and no! What the fuck? I know, I was losing it. But... Savage had pulled Hollywood's legs underneath the ropes as Roddy celebrated, followed by the ref noticing and wondering if he had made a mistake. So Mark Curtis restarts the match as Macho puts some brass knuckles in Hogan's hand. Takes him a while to get him. He's digging in that jacket. Mm -hmm. Hollywood, with one punch, lands on top of Piper for the pin and the win. And the bell rings again, and I'm confused and upset. Post-match, Savage runs in to retrieve the foreign object, 
before helping Hogan continue the beatdown on Roddy, spray painting him on the back. And Savage is horrible with that spray paint, by the way. Yeah, he just turns into a zebra. (laughs) Macho hits multiple flying elbow drops. Hollywood with multiple leg drops, followed by choking in the ring, before Savage and Hogan give high fives to each other and continue to celebrate as Tony says his goodbyes, and we head to credits. Whack. Mm-hmm. So I ask you gentlemen, what are your overall thoughts of Super Brawl 7? It's better than sold out, but I don't feel like anything is particularly must watch with the exception of are you interested in the key NWO members because if that's a story you'd like to see all of like these matches are necessary and there's some great jun- like junior cruiser weight work earlier on the show but I don't know that it's enough to work your way from beginning to end on this one yeah I mean a, a similar vibe from me on that I don't even know what to say about it it's not a hard watch no it wasn't a hard watch it was there's too many matches I mean it's a 10 a 10 match show and not all the matches were necessary which is how it typically is on a 10 match show but you know like you were saying I was trying to think back through them of which ones would I consider must watch and you know the one that I mostly liked was the ones that the fans chanted boring during. Yeah, I mean I really like um, Malenko in six, but and the fans were behind that, but because six has been a shithead, and Malenko had a little bit more energy and emotion than you know normally the having ice water in his veins. But yeah, it's like Jericho and Eddie was so good, I think and the crowd lot, did it no favors. I think a lot of my feelings toward the show too is. This was around the time, back in 97, that my brain started going, all right, I think I'm over this now. Yeah, you're already done with the end yeah, the, the new had worn off, and I was already tired of the constant repetitive, repetitiveness that they have with a lot of the matches. And You know what? Yeah. I think that the Giant and Lex Luger beating the Outsiders isn't enough to make up for the fucked up finish of the main event. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like where it comes, where where I feel the way I feel about it. Do you know? The, and I know it's shocking. Machos in the NWO, but in hindsight, it doesn't feel shocking. But I'm sure at this time, maybe it could have drawn people further into the story or drew people further into the story. Yeah, because I mean, as soon as the the tag belt match was over, I already knew that they weren't going to be able to keep them because of. Bischoff, you know, pulling some sort of a stupid rule or or whatever, and then yeah, the ending of the Piper Hogan match, I won't lie, too part many shenanigans. Part of me really wanted to see Piper holding up that belt for of just you know, even five minutes. He but... could win it. He'd lose it the next night. We've seen it happen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a horrible show, but not one that I'd say, hey kids, watch this. Oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, it's not a not a, a go to pay per view as far as uh, recommendations. I feel like I may have liked this show more than you guys. I mean, I do agree there are too many matches. That that is the that's the one negative on this show. But I had a lot of fun with it for so, like. I think that the end spoiled me so much that I was just like, because I don't think the show was a hard watch at all. Hmm. 
I mean, there's tons of storyline development, which didn't get into all of it because we're, spoiler alert, we're watching the Nitro. That's right after this show. Yeah, where we'll be able to illuminate more. So some of the storyline stuff gets started. You, you see the ramifications of what happened on this show more on that. But literally none of the matches overstay its welcome. I'll agree with that. Like, I think the longest match on the show is like 12 minutes. Yeah. It does, like I said, it's not a hard it, watch. It, it's, it's very it, brisk. It flies through. Like, yeah. And even the matches that aren't the best, like, when I first saw, oh, this triangle tag match, is, I was just like, oh, geez. It was like three minutes long. I had lots of fun with that match. Like, I thought that match was super fun. Yeah, I do. Well, it was fun. Because I, I was like, oh, I have a, immediately, I'm like, all right, hurry up. And then watching it flies by. It was entertaining. I mean, the the tag title match, it is the epitome of what a hot tag is. No, it's great. Yeah. I like that. I love that. And it made... I mean, yes, we all know that they're just going to do the exact NWO same thing. Fuckery. They're going to yeah. do the exact same thing that they did to the Steiners last time that the Outsiders lost the belt. We know that. But... Also, knowing what's going to happen a little bit, it's what kind of is the catalyst for what happens next, is this. The main event, yes, like, I wish... Macho was supposed to pull his leg... Earlier. Earlier. Yes. Under the ropes. So it would have made more sense. Because I even rewound back to before... The you know the winning announcement and, and it was so obvious you didn't even need to rewind. Yeah, it's like okay, wait, no, his foot wasn't even close. No, it, no, you can that's see the why shadow I, yeah. of the rope on the bottom of his foot. Maybe that wouldn't have annoyed me as much if the timing was right, because at least it, I would have been able to see it. But like the we don't have a rewind clause in the WWF. This is the WCW. Good. Where, where's the smart marks at? All right, fuck you. I think it's time we smark it up. So what are some of the best moments of this show? Honestly, Paul White drop kicking, uh, I believe it was Kevin Nash out of the ring. Yeah, I the, popped the drop that. kick and the powerbomb. Uh-huh. Yeah, or the jackknife. Kevin doing the powerbomb on the giant. Yeah, but the giant doing the drop I guarantee kick, you, it looks we, pretty good. We, mm-hmm. we will not see probably another good one of those. No. <laughs> there's, there's a, there, there is a, there's a very up. bad one that we'll see in the future. I mean, I know it seemed like a lot when, but the finish of the triangle tag match is a that is literally what a modern six man tag match looks like. Yeah, looks like. No, no, I mean totally. the finish because like everybody runs in and hits their shit basically mm-hmm. for someone to like end up that's no one's thinking should be there to win the match. Yeah, it was well uh, well put together, and it was the most modern thing on this show like it feels like it be on television tomorrow I mean we already mentioned it Eddie and Chris felt like straight out of a Super J Cup best of Super Juniors yeah. mm-hmm. and I feel show. like they're shifting it a little bit to work more for a US crowd and it just they don't take to it I enjoyed the uh, Sullivan Benoit woman Jackie match yes. more that was than also I, fun. I was going to same yeah everything on the show Matt is kind of turning around I think the end of the show just soured me on it so much and I still don't feel like any of it is like required viewing 
is kind of the way I feel. Uh, Absolutely. Nothing is required, but I think it is just a fun show that is, you know, you're wanting to throw something on the background. You're going to see some cool shit happen. It didn't feel like a waste of time by any means. No, definitely not. No, it wasn't one of those where I sat there going, why the fuck are you making me watch this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I said, uh, after Sold Out, the fucking WCW sky is the if, limit. If, if it went down from Sold Out, then we'd, we'd have some issues. Yeah. 83 weeks wouldn't have been 83 weeks. <laughs> no. Definitely not. How about most disappointing moments? Savage not getting the like yeah. cool. Gun. I mean, yeah, that's obviously number one. The fuckery and the end of the match. Yeah. But also, I've thought this for many, many years. To me, it made no sense for Savage to join the NWO. None no. at all. Doesn't feel right. Because all. I mean, other than Hogan just not wanting another person to be a challenger for him, that that literally is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Because Savage is literally just going to be pushed down into the U.S. Yeah. Belt contention. That's that's where Savage is going to get. That he'll never. I don't think he ever gets to the big belt. And again. and like honestly, Savage like hiding in the shadows and being almost like Sting's loud lackey would have been really cool. Could have been a really cool dynamic. I mean, literally thinking about it, like you have and not lackey's not the Sting, word, Savage, but... DDP, Lex, and Giant. That's an awesome stable. That's an awesome like face top stable. top of the card. On the WCW side, that's not even including any of the horsemen. That's a, a because Flair's team, right there. Because Flair, because Flair's Absolutely. hurt. Yeah, I mean NWO, and really NWO is still only three strong at this point. I mean, I guess they're now four strong with Savage. I, I feel like this was basically one Hogan didn't want another challenger. Of, didn't didn't ever want to face Ho- Savage again. Well, and Savage or, knows that like two, Hogan won't give him the belt. So like, what's the fucking point? Might exactly. as well join them. If you can't beat him, join him. Legitimately, if you can't beat him, join him. And it was obvious. And yeah. two, they realized that the B team's not working. No. No. I mean, when your B team is buff. I mean, buff, buff is your most over. And when I say over, I mean, like, probably best yeah, performer I mean, well, yeah, of the yeah. B team. Well, six. Or you see Six is A, a team. A, yeah. He's A, uh, yeah. He's, he's, a two. he's part of the clique. Yeah. When you've got Buff, Wall Street, and Scott Norton, and Vincent as Big your... Big Bubba. Oh, yeah, that's right, Bubba. forgot about Bubba. Yeah, that's tough. But, yeah, the Savage thing, I didn't like the fact that they had Savage and Hogan wearing matching gear. Because it was just a, as soon as Savage and Sting walked out, I saw Savage's gear and went, Oh, cool. Oh, you knew he was going to turn. Lightning bolts. Yeah. Okay, so this is when it happens. Yeah, you knew he was going to turn as soon as he walked out with him. Yep. And you knew Sting wasn't because we've all known enough about Sting. And that's part of the the magic of Macho for these last few years is he's somewhat unpredictable. And then when you walk out there and something that just clearly predictable, I mean, the man loves gear. Ruins, that's for sure. It. Best performer of the night. I'm giving it to the Giant. Hey, I was gonna say the same yeah. thing. I was gonna give it to Paul White. That's cool. I wasn't sure. I was like, figured you were gonna pick one of the cruisers. Hit a drop kick, took a power bomb, didn't rhyme. He, he was over for the first time yeah. ever in a real way. Yeah, I'm done with G-Man. Yeah, he's not going to get it super very often, so nah. give it to him now. Chris Jericho and Eddie and Malenko, they all have their plenty of chances, as they always deliver. And how about most surprising of the night? 
that's hard to say because nothing was very surprising on this show. I guess maybe Public Enemy winning, maybe. But when I knew I that, see that when I knew that the Steiners weren't there and that they're obviously being set up to be the number one contenders, it makes sense for them to be able to just waste Public Enemy on like a Nitro or something. How about the, the Lucha match not sucking? It didn't stink, no. Yeah. Right. It's not my favorite style of match, but it was, what was very good. What was your least favorite match on this show? Hmm. Is it the Honestly, main event? It's it's a toss-up between... I mean, maybe the three-man tag? I feel like Mongo and Jarrett was good story-wise. Like, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think there was any bad matches, like awful matches on this show in context of what they're trying to do. It might be the Prince Ikea match. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of looking at that one. That, that dude's just not ready for... Yeah. ...to be in the spotlight. Not ready for TV. No, yeah, not ready for pay-per-view. Really. <laughs> yeah. But Ray's in there, you know, doing the most of the work, so... It's not, it's not like, unwatchable. Yeah, and anything. they didn't chant boring, so... There is that. There's, that does help, yeah. <laughs> It's a shame that the best technical match on the show got a boring chance. Yeah. And now for a look back even further into the history of wrestling. The dusty finish. Hulk Hogan had accepted the challenge and won the WWF Championship at WrestleMania 9. But Yokozuna would be a thorn in his side until they would meet again at the King of the Ring on June 13th, 1993. Yoko would use his size advantage early on, but after a missed corner splash, the Hulkster would counter with mounted punches and clotheslines. Hogan would even try to slam Zuna a couple of times, but just couldn't lift him, hurting his back in the process. Yokozuna would focus on the back with a bear hug and a belly-to-belly suplex, only for Hogan to begin to Hulk up. Three big boots would finally knock Yoko down to the mat followed by a leg drop, but Zuna kicks out. The Hulkster goes to hit another leg drop, when a photographer has jumped on the apron to get a closer look. So Hogan questions what he's doing, when the camera would explode in Hogan's face, and Yokozuna would hit a throat chop and a leg drop, for the pin, to become the WWF champion for the second time. Yoko would face numerous challengers, such as Lex Luger and The Undertaker, until a rematch from the previous WrestleMania would become the focus. What's funny is uh, I could just see the Hogan back cell in my mind so clearly. Yeah. The flop. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> the flop, and then when he stands up and he just, yeah, like arches his chest out and his arms back. Next week... I mentioned it a while ago that we were going to watch the Nitro the day after. Yeah. Let's just do it next week. Absolutely. So you're going to be looking for the WCW Monday Night Nitro from February 24th, 1997. And the music from this week's show is Urgent Memory. And Hogan won our main event, so we play Rock House by FCD Music. And if you like this episode or any of our other ones, please go out there and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast at. Do as Michael says. Five stars are no stars. Why waste your time being a jerk? It's true. If you have any questions, comments, concerns. What was your favorite match on this, this, this show? Who were you going for? 
<laughs> what uh, what do you like in your mission style burritos? Any of these answers can be submitted to us. You know, slide into our DMs on Twitter. Give us a shout out. Sorry, I said Twitter. How old am I? Good lord. It just happened. On on the X, zed it to us or however you pronounce that word. God, I hate the X. They call it the X. Everyone still calls it Twitter. It's fine. Ugh. But yeah, give us a shout out. Talk to us. Tell us tell us what's going on. We we love the interaction. Keeps us going. That's right. But you send those things to our email at wrestlinghistoryx at gmail.com or find us on X at wrestlinghistox. That's wrestling H-I-S-T-O-X. We'll talk to you next week. Laters. Fuck you, Terry. New world order.